This is Geraldine Hasselpool, FMH blogger and all-around Mormon feminist superstar. If you have enjoyed the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast as much or more than you have enjoyed a Mormon casserole or a salad recipe from the children's friend, please consider a tax-deductible donation to the podcast. Your donation supports the amplification of women's voices, past, present, and future. Please give and give generously, and then deduct it from your taxes like a true American, and then eat some funeral potatoes. Hey, you've earned it. One, two, three, go. Feminist. Mormon. Housewives. Hello and welcome back to another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. If this is your first time tuning in, I would recommend going all the way back to episode one. It's really important that you sort of get the background of the series to sort of understand the points that I'm going to be trying to make. I just have a few house cleaning things to talk about first. As you know, if you've been following the series, this this series was meant to be just a year, meaning the year of 2014, and this is being recorded in January 2015. So clearly we are going over a year. Uh, I've said this before that as long as we're under 365 episodes, I think we're fine. I don't think we will go to 365 episodes, although we could because there's so, so, so much to talk about. I've mentioned that we are starting to talk about Mormon fundamentalism for the next few months, and I want to be clear that when I use the term fundamentalist Mormon or Mormon fundamentalist, that that is a very broad term and there are a large, diverse group of people that have differing beliefs, and I don't mean to lump them in together. That said, I've also mentioned how difficult of a time I've had researching this. It's been the last several months that I've really become sort of obsessed with this research. I have dug in, and I'm hoping that being able to finally record these episodes and get this research out of my head and onto the podcast is going to help make me feel better because it's been a very difficult time for me to research this. That said, if you cannot handle being upset, hearing very dark, disturbing things, maybe the fundamentalist thing is something for you to turn off. And I and I know that's saying a lot considering what we've been through with the Utah period. But there are going to be some discussions of abuse. There are going to be discussions of violence, especially in, in the episode that we're going to talk about today. So that is your warning I don't think that you want to listen necessarily with little children in the room. There's not going to be bad language or explicit details, but there are going to be talks of violence. So let's get into it. We're going to talk about the LeBaron group. This is a very, very long story, and there are so many fascinating components to it that I'm going to try to digest it for you as best I can. But I have linked a ton of great resources on the post on feministmormonhousewives.org and eventually yearofpolygamy.org, and I would recommend doing some further reading so you can interpret this information for yourself. Before we talk about the specifics of the family, we have to talk about some background. In 1832, Joseph had a revelation that, unbeknownst to him, would give would have a gigantic effect on thousands of people in a distant century. In a letter written to W.W. Phelps on November 17, 1832, Joseph Smith would transcribe a revelation which he claims he received from Jesus Christ directly. 
Here is part of the revelation. Quote, It shall come to pass that I, the Lord God, will send one mighty and strong, holding the scepter of power in his hand, clothed with light for a covering, whose mouth shall utter words, eternal words, while his bowels shall be a fountain of truth, to set in the order of the house of God, and to arrange by lot the inheritance of the saints, whose names are found in the names of their fathers and their children enrolled in the book of law of God. While that man who was called of God and appointed, that putteth forth his hand to study the ark of God, shall fall by the vivid shaft of lightning. These things I say not of myself, therefore as the Lord speaketh, he will also fulfill. End quote. He uses the term, the one mighty and strong, and of course he never reveals the identity of who that person is, but he prophesies that somebody will become the one mighty and strong. In a letter to Brigham Young, Phelps would write in 1867 that he believed that Joseph Smith referred to Adam and his future arrival of Adam on Diamond. That was Phelps' interpretation. These words from this prophecy sort of echo uh, from Isaiah 28 to the one mighty and strong by Joseph Smith was said to sort of set the house of God in order and arrange for the inheritance of the saints. Since this prophecy has happened, people have been speculating on who the one mighty and strong is. And this has actually really fueled a lot of fundamentalist schisms, as you will see in the story we're going to tell today. Let me just tell you about the background of it so we can understand the history. The first group to canonize this prophecy was the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the LDS Church. In 1876, they took the Smith-Phelps letter and included it as Section 85 in the Doctrine and Covenants, one of the LDS Church's books of scriptures. And it continues to be in our scriptures today. In 1905, the first presidency of the LDS Church, who were uh, Joseph F. Smith, John R. Winder, and Anthon H. Lund, tried to come up with some interpretations of this prophecy. So there were, I'm going to give you some of the interpretations. The one was the closed prophecy interpretation. They believe that maybe Smith's words may have been a prophecy of what would happen if the presiding bishop of the church, Edward Partridge, failed to repent and fulfill his calling in the church. So they said it was sort of a conditional prophecy, that it, it was based in the, in the context of the time, and that if the bishop of the church, Edward Partridge, didn't fulfill his calling, then this revelation would come into play. They think it was based on, you know, rebellion and jealous pride and unbelief and all of that. And so that was one interpretation. The other interpretation from the First Presidency was that maybe there was a prophecy of a future presiding bishop. They thought that maybe it wasn't closed, that maybe the one mighty and strong would be a future presiding bishop when the Latter-day Saints would return to Jackson County, Missouri. Concerning the first possibility, the First Presidency said, quote, if, however, there are those who will insist the prophecy concerning the one mighty and strong is still to be regarded as relating to the future, let the Latter-day Saints know that he will be a future bishop of the church who will be with the saints in Zion, Jackson County, Missouri, when the Lord shall establish them in that land. And he will be so blessed with the spirit of power of his calling that he will be able to set in order the house of God pertaining to the department of the work under his jurisdiction and in righteousness and in justice will arrange by lot the inheritance of the saints." He will hold the same high and exalted station that Edward Partridge held, for the latter was called to do just this kind of work, that is, to set in order the house of God pertaining to the settling of the saints upon their inheritances, end quote. 
So that is what the First Presidency uh, interpreted at the time in the early 1900s. Now, Contemporary LDS Church had um, originally published in the CES curriculum the 1905 First Presidency interpretations. And it's said today that the curriculum does not present the text of the First Presidency's proposed second possibility, but just the first. Uh, and the reason why I'm telling you about that is because, like I said, this is going to come into play in a little while. Now, we just talked, our last episode was on the Short Creek Grade about the Council of Friends happening and uh, the saints sort of becoming their own schism, developing the Council of Friends, the men that claim the authority from maybe Lorenzo Snow or John Taylor to practice plural marriage, even though the, the LDS Church had outlawed it, form their Council of Friends, and they start kind of running their own system, even though it's not an officially organized church. This is where someone named Alma Dare LeBaron comes into play. Alma Dare LeBaron was a Mormon pioneer, and when he moved away with that polygamous breakaway sect, with the Council of Friends, he had a vision, and this vision is important. His vision was that his many children would live in peace and prosperity, and among the pretty pecan orchards they would plant in the desert. Now remember, the LDS Church abandons the practice in 1890, and after that, some polygamous Mormons moved south to Mexico to continue the practice. A lot of this was church-sanctioned, as we know, but it starts to sort of phase out as the church continues to distance itself. Almadere LeBaron Sr. was one of those people. He was one of the people that moves to Mexico to practice this. And in 1924, he moves his family, including two wives and eight children, to northern Mexico. There, their family started a farm called Colonia LeBaron in Galenia, Chihuahua, Mexico. Now, they call it Colonial LeBaron because this is reminiscent of the colonies in the 1870s that were set up by practicing polygamists sanctioned by the church. So the LeBaron family starts this farm called Colonia LeBaron. At this time, they are still affiliated with the LDS church. They're still affiliated with the Council of Friends. It's messy. There's not this real this real distinct break-off of the church. Alma LeBaron was gener generally known as Dare LeBaron, and he was the grandson of Benjamin F. Johnson, who was the confidential secretary and part-time business partner of Joseph Smith Jr. So, of course, they have this tie to Joseph Smith. Alma's childhood was spent mostly in Mesa, Arizona, not far from his grandfather, Benjamin F. Johnson, and he later would move to Colonia Juarez in Chihuahua, Mexico. And that's where he continued his education and met his first wife, Barbara Bailey. They got married in 1904, and they had one son. But LeBaron's religious beliefs sort of alienated him from his first wife, who left taking their child, and she moved to Salt Lake City to be with her, her own mother. So with his prospects, you know, for eternal glory sort of, sort of disappearing Alma moves back to Utah, and he meets Maude Lucinda McDonald, and they get married in 1910. Together, they would have 13 children, 5 girls, and 8 boys. Now, I find that there are some similarities, as is with all Mormon fundamentalists, to the original Mormon story of Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith comes from a family of revelators, of dreamers, of vision people. Joseph's own family had very similar visions to Joseph's own first vision long before Joseph was even born. His family was sort of into this. The LeBarons 
were said to be the same way. The LeBaron family now is accused of lunacy because uh, they had visions which alternatively referred to as voices, callings, or commands. They have quite a documented history in the LeBaron family of hearing voices. Alma Dare LeBaron had a revelation to take a second wife, and that's why he moves to Mexico again and starts his own colony. He also had a revelation telling him not to register for the World War II draft. In 1923, Alma approached Nathan Clark to perform his sealing to Oni Jones. The following year, both he and his wives are excommunicated from the LDS Church for, quote, for violative conduct. The church disciplinary council was held in Laverkin, Utah, which was Oni Jones's hometown. And what LeBaron does, how he reacts to this, is he takes his two wives and eight children back to Colonial Juarez, and he works as a painter, and then that's where he starts his own farm. So that's kind of how their move happened. Now, let's talk about the LeBaron sons, because they are important. LeBaron sons that come from first wife Maude McDonald were Benjamin Teasdale LeBaron, Ross Wesley LeBaron, Alma Dare LeBaron Jr., Florin LeBaron, Verlin LeBaron, Joel F. LeBaron, and Ervil LeBaron. Now, the ones we're going to focus on are Ervil LeBaron, Joel LeBaron, and Verlin. And I know Ervil, Verlin, and Joel kind of get mixed up. Th those names sound very similar. But those are important names to know. Ervil, Joel, and Verlin. At different times throughout their life, seven of them would hold lofty priesthood callings and offices, like, quote, the one mighty and strong, which meant the presiding patriarch in all the world... So these guys, the LeBaron family, are now living in Colonial LeBaron, affiliated loosely with all the other fundamentalist sects uh, influenced by them, recently excommunicated. And, you know, the boys would, after the excommunication of their parents, they talk about being isolated, treated different by church members, ridiculed, looked at, and there is a resentment that builds up because of this. So they associate themselves with who now who is in charge, Rulon C. Al Alred's AUB, the Apostolic United Brethren, who happened to have a presence in the Mexican state of Chihuahua. When Alma dies in 1951, he sort of passes the leadership of the community to his son, Joel LeBaron. Now, we're going to talk about that, but remember how it's set up is there are all these like pockets of fundamentalists, and in the pockets there are people that are leading it, but they're usually associated with a bigger group. At this time, it would have been the AUB because the Council of Friends is sort of starting to split at this time and divide into different ideologies and, and uh, traces of authority. But LeBarons are still with the AUB at this point. I want to talk to you about a woman now named Irene Spencer. Irene Spencer has written several books on being involved with the LeBaron family. And I would recommend, if you are interested in listening to her audiobooks or reading her books, that she has written about this. She, I mean, I feel like her books are a little bit self-congratulatory sometimes, which sometimes makes me suspicious of the narrative. But a lot of her research is backed up by corroborating accounts. Irene Spencer was a fifth-generation polygamist. Four generations before her were devout polygamists. And so Irene admits that as a young girl, she has dreams of becoming a monogamous wife because she really wanted to be the apple of her husband's eye. 
But she knew that that wasn't a possibility. So she secretly hoped that she would at least be the favorite wife for her eventual husband. And, you know, this this is something I can relate to as a young girl growing up in sort of this cult of marriage where you're taught from 12 years old on up and sometimes even younger that marriage is the most important thing that it's so important to be your husband's favorite and beloved, especially, you know, in the Mormon narrative, in the LDS Mormon narrative, we have this fear of porn that kind of makes us suspicious of other women. And uh, I can see that if I were, you know, having to think of actual lived polygamy, that I would, I would want to do this as well. I would want to be the most beloved, the favorite, have something that was special about me. So this was Irene. She knew that she didn't, you know, she didn't really want to do this, but she was indoctrinated from birth with the idea that it was her job to help the men in their lives get their priesthood and their own priesthood meant getting their own planet. And that without women, these men could not progress in heaven. And she wanted to be the kind of wife that would help her husband do just that. A good wife helps her husband get into heaven. And this is what Irene Spencer wanted. Her half-sister Charlotte married a man named Verlin LeBaron, one of the, you know, the LeBaron brothers. And, you know, they're living close to the colonies, but they're traveling back and forth. Um, you know, all of these, all of these break-off sects are connected by family. There's, you know, everyone kind of knows each other and they're supporting each other. But Irene's parents were not fans of the LeBarons. There were already rumors of insanity in the LeBaron's family that made people look down on them. Uh, the One of the daughters of the LeBaron's uh, was a woman named Lucinda, and she had been a plural wife that, according to Irene, had, quote, lost her mind because of it. And she was kept half-naked in a cage on the LeBaron ranch because of her lunacy. And so Charlotte's marriage to Verlin only made it worse for the family because Charlotte would tell stories, send them back to the family, saying, Oh my goodness, Lucinda is crazy. And this made Irene Spencer's parents say, you don't want to get associated with these people. Something's not right about them. Well, Charlotte and Verlin come to visit her in Utah, Irene Spencer in Utah, with a mission. Unbeknownst to anyone, including Verlin's own brothers, Verlin wants to take on a plural wife. Now again, there's not a lot of authority to do this because everyone's isolated so it gets messy on how this happens, but Verlin knows that this is what a good priesthood holder does. He needs to get a wife. So Charlotte and Verlin go to visit Irene. Irene Spencer was 16 when Verlin approaches her in Utah, and he tells her that she needs to be a second wife. She is hesitant and worried, but she also thinks that maybe this is her chance. Charlotte is singing his praises, and she would know after being a fifth-generation polygamist that Marrying your sister's husband was probably one of the easiest ways to make this transition. And you're 16. It's, it's exciting to start this new life and to sort of fast-track your way into the eternities this way. So she would marry her half-sister, Charlotte's husband, Verlin LeBaron, on July 3rd, 1953. This would be a secret ceremony against her family's wishes. She actually only told her brother that she had married Verlin and was moving to Mexico. So they marry on July 3rd. On August 29th, the family arrives in the LeBaron Ranch in Chihuahua, Mexico. Now, Verlin has kept this marriage secret from his family and his brothers as well. 
At this time, the majority of the LeBarons are monogamous, and they're having problems. One of their brothers, Alma Jr., believed that UFOs were coming down to take the family to heavenly realms, and it was said that he ran naked through the ranch until he and some others congregated on Alma's roof waiting for the UFOs. One of the brothers, Joel, eventually had to call the police on Alma Jr. because they were being so dangerous on the roof, naked, causing such a scene on the LeBaron ranch. Another problem with, with the family was Ben Benjamin LeBaron. He was someone who sort of claimed to take on this authority. Now, their father had often talked about the one mighty and strong and really believed it would be one of his sons that would step up and fulfill this revelation. So Ben, of course, says, it's me, I'm the one. And pretty soon, Ben's antics get him hospitalized in the Utah State Hospital, and he claims to have God talk to him daily. And you can read letters that he's sending back to his family saying, they think I'm crazy, but God's talking to me and telling me I'm not. So right away, Alma and Ben and Lucinda have some clear mental health problems. Three out of out of these 13 kids are either hos- hospitalized or certifiable. Ben would drift in and out of mental hospitals for years. And after hearing voices his entire life telling him that God was talking to him, he committed suicide in 1978 by jumping off a bridge. Another son... Wesley LeBaron frequently called Salt Lake City City radio shows to expound his belief that Jesus Christ would one day return to Earth in a spaceship. The voices that the LeBarons heard also told their nephew Owen to have sex with the family dog, and he was committed to a mental hospital. So this is what 16-year-old Irene Spencer is walking into. This is the family in this isolated, very poor ranch in Chihuahua, Mexico. So she gets there and she explains that she was shocked. The ranch was barren. It was barely a ranch. It had a few adobe shacks and there were no glass in the windows. The floors were made out of cement. There were bare walls, no sink, no plumbing. There was a wood cook stove and no electricity. She remembers that her husband Verlin walks her in and says, here is your room. It's next to Charlotte's. And in the room was just this blank walls, like a dark cell, with a metal bed and no mattress. And Verlin said, don't worry about it, the, the springs are woven, so it's better than a mattress anyway. And they would eat very, very poorly, mostly beans and sometimes tortillas. And Irene remembers that the beans were full of weevils. And whatever milk came from the cow was given to the, the babies that were there. It was just so poor. Now, a lot of these fundamentalist sects were poor anyways. They were, you know, living in a time when when America was struggling economically anyway. But because they're not having church support from the LDS church and they're sort of living on the fringes of society, they were even more impoverished. Irene talks about her first night with her husband with resentment. She, She says that she felt awkward and like an intruder. She gets a room next to Charlotte's, and she said that when Verlin came to sleep with her in the house, he felt guilty making love to her with Charlotte in the room next to him. So he started preaching to her instead. And so she felt like something was wrong with her, and for the first few weeks, she cried herself to sleep. As she wakes up the next morning and she approaches her new day as second wife in this new place, Ervil LeBaron, who is Verlin's brother, comes 
and introduces himself. And he tells Verlin that he has a revelation that Ervil is supposed to take her as his second wife. Of course, Ervil does not know that Verlin is already married to her. So he says, hey, I've had a revelation. She's supposed to be my wife. Verlin says, uh, sorry, actually, she's already my second wife. And when Ervil realizes this, he plays it off as a joke. Like, oh, it wasn't really a revelation. I was just joking. Word gets out slowly amongst the ranch, and the first wives of all the men sort of look at Irene Spencer with suspicion. She is seen as sort of a foreshadowing of what is to come for them. They would go to church in what was held in a small adobe home in a nearby settlement, and they would take hook up their horses to a four-wheeled wagon and meet every week. Verlin starts courting a 17-year-old girl at church, and this girl's name was Lucy, and she was excited to be his third wife. She claims that she had always been in love with him since birth. The LeBaron brothers were good-looking men and kind of ran the show there, so they were men of status and power. So Verlin starts courting the 17-year-old girl, and it's just a few years into Irene's marriage. Verlin takes her as his third wife in 1955. Irene said when this happened, she literally wanted to die. She said, quote, My spirit had been broken by the poverty and hardships in Mexico, but when Verlin married Lucy, my heart broke as well, end quote. Now, Ervil, the brother who brother of Verlin, was married to a woman named Delphina. She was Catholic, and she would not convert to Mormonism, and this frustrated Ervil. He often warned her that someday he would marry into plural marriage, but she would not have it. She was very staunch uh, Catholic. Ervil was bothered, especially since Verlin is starting to accrue wives, and Ervil is not being able to do the same. So there is a parade that happens. There is a woman that rides a parade. She won, won some local award. I can't remember the exact name of the, the award. And her name was Maria de, de la Luz, and she was a beautiful young Mexican girl who lived in the mountains. Ervil becomes smitten with her, and he decides to secretly marry her. So he goes away for a week, leaves his family, marries this woman, honeymoons with her, and brings her back to the ranch, not telling Delfina. When he finally tells her, he goes to live with her for a few days, Delfina alone, so he can prepare her. And Irene remembers sitting in her little adobe house, hearing what sounded like an animal in extreme, extreme pain in the middle of the night. So, of course, her and her family run out of their adobe house to go see what's the matter, and it's Delfina. She has found out that her husband, Ervil, has taken on a second wife, and she flies into what is described as a jealous, shrieking rage. And this would last for weeks and weeks. It was described as wails of sheer agony and anguish. Wretched despair is how Irene would put it. She says that when they walked into Delphina, she was pounding at Ervil, throwing things in. And when they finally grabbed her, she sobbed and sobbed, let me die, let me die. Irene says that by the scene, she starts crying. And she said, quote, I could barely tolerate polygamy as I was a product of four generations. How could Delphina, never a Mormon, handle it? I cried with her, end quote. She said she went home that night and she cried herself to sleep. And she thought, why is it that the gospel of the Lord brings so much pain to women? 
The next day, Delphina had not calmed down, so the, the brothers had to lock her up in an ice house, and they chained and padded the door because Delphina would not keep calm. She was kept in this darkened room for over a week, mumbling and ranting in the dark. She would rant and scream and shriek for over a week. Ervil finally gets fed up with this. He says, I can't deal with her anymore, especially because I'm honeymooning with my new wife. He throws, with the help of his brothers, Delphina in a car and drives her to her parents' house in a nearby town. He wants the parents to take care of it. Ervil believed that Delphina was possessed by satanic forces for letting her jealous spirit drive out the spirit of God. In Chihuahua City, Delphina is committed into a mental hospital because of this. Back at home, Ervil is honeymooning with his new wife, Maria de la Luz. Now, Joel LeBaron was another brother that I talked about, and he's an important brother. In 1955, before Ervil, you know, takes on his second wife, Joel LeBaron and his brothers Ross and Florin are visiting Salt Lake City, Utah. And it's said that it's there that they organize what they call the Church of the Firstborn of the Fullness of Times. Joel claims he has a revelation that he becomes sort of this one mighty and strong that his father had talked about. And other people like his brothers, Ross and Florin, are witnesses to this revelation. So he writes back this revelation that's signed by his brother saying, This is what it is. I'm organizing the Church of the Firstborn of the Fullness of Times. And Joel becomes president of the church, Florin becomes a first counselor in the first presidency, and Ross is the head patriarch. Joel claims to be uh, visited by 19 former prophets, including Jesus, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, and Joseph Smith Jr. Joel claims that his priesthood line of authority um, came from his father, who had been ordained by Alma's grandfather, Benjamin F. Johnson. Now, again, us Mormons, no matter where we come from, are so obsessed with authority, right? Because our church is so based on authority and keys, it's important for for fundamentalists to be able to trace theirs back. And Joel claims his from Alma, who claims his from Benjamin F. Johnson, who claims he received the priesthood from Joseph Smith directly. So these guys are unique in that they don't take their authority from the Council of Friends, from John Taylor or Lorenzo Snow. They claim to trace theirs back to Joseph Smith directly. Joel invites his family and friends into his new organization. He even invites the All Red group into his organization. He's like, listen, this this revelation is legitimate. You guys need to join the church. Of course, they say absolutely not. So the LeBaron brothers return to Chihuahua, Mexico. They know that their family is disappointed. Joel was out, was soft-spoken and shy and awkward. He had sort of fumbly manners and a bad sense of dress. Nobody saw how he could be the one mighty and strong. When he comes back to the colony, some men approach him in a special meeting and say, listen, is it really true? Are you really the one? And Joel is said to have looked down, and his face flushes with embarrassment, and he's kind of like, yeah, I'm so sorry. I don't know why it's me, but it's me. I didn't ask for this, but here we are. So, And that's said to have engendered sort of automatic support with people committing to it. Their father, Alma, and brother, Ervil, would become the fourth and fifth members of the new church, and their mother, Maud, eventually joined, too. Several months later, Ervil LeBaron publishes a pamphlet titled Priesthood Expounded, and this becomes a foundational text in their church, and it's going to come in later on, Ervil's writings, Priesthood Expounded. 
if you listen to the episode with Brian Hales, he thinks that these guys, that these breakoff groups cannot claim to be fundamentalist Mormons because they don't do something that's foundational to the church, which is proselytizing. The LeBarons were actually one of the only sects to actively proselytize. The Church of the Firstborn of the Fullness of Times engaged in active proselytizing. Most of their efforts were focused on attracting Mormon fundamentalists from other groups to join their group. And missionaries of the church um, had actually distributed tracts at the LDS Church strongholds at BYU in Provo, Utah, and outside the gates of Temple Square in Salt Lake City. The church's pamphlet, Priesthood Expounded, and other pamphlets became instrumental in the conversion of nine LDS Church missionaries in the church's French mission to the LeBaron Church. I'm going to tell you this story now, which is kind of veering off the LeBaron story for a moment to talk about what is called the worst missionary apostasy in the history of the LDS Church. I've linked to some great articles, including one from Dialogue called The Trial of the French Mission, and uh, there's two parts to that that explains the story in detail, and I would absolutely recommend, if you've never heard this before, that you need to read about this. This is this is really important because this was also Mitt Romney's mission, and this is uh, was a huge deal for the church, and it actually helped shape and change a lot of the policies that happened. So what happens is, you know, the church, the LeBarons, have now formed their church early in 55, Priesthood Expounded is published and distributed amongst Salt Lake City, Utah. Meanwhile, over in France, there is a mission that has had struggled since World War II to like up until the 50s. I think that there was a very, very small number of converts in the mission as a whole. So missionaries were notoriously lazy. They would go watch movies. They would lay around in their apartments all day. It was a hopeless mission and it didn't have a lot of hope until a young convert whose name was William Tucker comes. He converted to the church at age 15. He was from California, and he was just into this, right? And now I remember myself. I was a 19-year-old girl. I was waiting for a missionary. I was really, really sort of fed by everyone else saying, like, you need to keep yourself spiritually fed because your missionary is going to come home and be the spiritual giant and you're going to be so behind him. And I really was worried about that. So I took that seriously. So I read everything I could. And for about four years straight, I read only church approved sources, books from Desert Book. I remember even going to the Utah State Bookstore and buying my textbooks, but then going and buying whatever newest church book was out. And I just read this up. And I remember the missionary who I was waiting for, I was in a car with his dad and mom traveling back to Utah State. They were driving me back up. And I was telling them about Cleon Skousen's book, which I had read. And I and it was talking about the end of days and the signs of times. And this missionary's dad said, you know, you need to be careful with that stuff. And I was shocked. I thought, what do you mean? And he said, well, sometimes people take it too far. And I couldn't make sense of that. I was like, how could you take the gospel too far? It doesn't make sense. But I think I understand, because the story of William Tucker is just that. I was 19. 19 is a time when fundamentalist organizations, terrorist organizations, capitalize on the extremism in the youth. This is why we see suicide bombers being young, very young people, because they're indoctrinated at this time when this fundamentalism is sort of thriving. 
So Elder Tucker converts at 15, super into Mormon doctrine. He immerses himself in the study of its history and doctrine. He is into this this extracurricular stuff, right? The mysteries of God and all of these things. So he goes on his mission to France, and he becomes this dynamite missionary. He's dynamic. He is smart. He is well-read. He is direct, and he's compelling. He starts not only compelling people to investigate the church, but he also really starts a fire under the missionaries there. I mean, it catches the attention of the president, who writes in his journal that this is a blessing from God because this young elder, Elder Tucker, changes the mission. He he turns things around. Now, Tucker does not stop with his sort of zeal. He is preaching by day and studying by night. He's finding anything he can get his hands on. And his first companion was Elder Shore. And Elder Shore got into this with him too. They found kind of soulmates within each other. And they're studying and they're learning. And they're learning about things that they had never heard. And I remember doing the same thing too. It felt like you were you're stumbling upon a higher law. Something that only those that really searched for it knew about. This sort of exclusive club. And Tucker and Shore were doing this, and they were really excited about it. Elder Shore would go home shortly, and he promised Tucker that he would go to Utah, find more material, and send it back to Tucker. And, of course, he does do this. Now, what happens is Shore is perusing Salt Lake City bookstores, and he comes across LeBaron's Priesthood Expounded. And it talks about, you know, polygamy and all these things. And so Shore is sending this back to Tucker in France. And, of course, Tucker is now with a new companion, getting his new companion on board. They start getting more companions, more sister missionaries. They start holding evening studies and testimony meetings where they're talking about this stuff, and they're realizing that they're they're stumbling upon this higher law. They're reading the journal discourses. They realize, they, they read the quotes that we've read in this series that talks about polygamy being essential, being fundamental, being the most important thing in the higher order of law. And these missionaries become a little bit disillusioned. They're thinking, this is not what we're teaching. This is not even why we're taught. How come we were not taught this? If this is so essential, why do we not teach this? Of course, Tucker is continuing to thrive in the mission. And he is telling other companions, some who are involved in the study and some who are not, but he has definitely got the reputation for being this this fireball missionary that everyone should be influenced by. There was one companion whose name was Daniel Jordan, and he becomes so immersed in in Tucker's sort of study that he refuses to eat white bread or chocolate on his mission because he, this is his interpretation now of the Word of Wisdom. He would pray in the open, looking straight up in the air, and he would kept he would keep a pencil and a paper by his bedside to record his dreams, which he considered to be revelations. And the missionaries stop proselytizing, and they start devoting themselves to study. Dan Jordan's aloofness and his sort of extremism sometimes frightened other people on the mission because it was so intense. Tucker, along with about four missionaries now, are doing these evening studies, and they decide to recruit other people. So they sort of develop a test. And usually they would test if a missionary was ready by stating an apostate principle. And then what would come next would depend on how the elder reacted. If the elder was confused and questioning, they might pursue the topic to bring him around to it. And if he denounced the principle and appeared to be knowledgeable, they would drop the subject on it. 
So as these different missionaries are splitting off, they're gaining popularity and confer- converting their own, their own converts and their companions. They're reading the Journal of Discourses. They're teaching that maybe some of the early, that the current church leaders are living polygamy, that the church is apostatized. Jarvis would write in his journal, quote, The events of the next few years are going to try this church from the bottom to the top, and I fear much persecution from the members of the church who are founded on traditions rather than real testimony, end quote. These missionaries that are hearing Tucker's beliefs are now starting to really question things. A lot of elders that didn't have a lot of church experience that were converts or maybe not really necessarily strong were particularly vulnerable to Tucker's visionary stuff. He was enthusiastic and had conviction, and they couldn't determine whether or not it was a spirit or like the true spirit of missionary work. They were really confused, including a woman named Marilyn Lamborn. She is a sister missionary there, and she she would write, quote, I was th- just thrilled with my new knowledge. I'd write home and say, these Beautiful doors were being opened to me. I guess my letters must have sounded crazy. I really don't think I would have ever given up. I really didn't think I would ever give up my beloved church. I didn't know I was headed in that direction. End quote. It's said that maybe a third of the missionaries in the French mission, which was 130 missionaries, would follow Tucker. And about 30 of them were considered firm believers. In fact, under his influence, missionaries began to study and wear only the old-style temple garments. The mission president gets word of this. What has happened is one of the companions tells someone, Marion G. Romney, up in Utah, who comes back and tells the mission president, and the mission president's like, "Uh uh-oh, I've got to take care of this. So the mission president puts Tucker in charge of investigating. In April of 1958, he sends Tucker to make several visits to groups in April and May. And of course, each time Tucker reports back, he says everything is under control and the missionaries have been counseled not to study things that they could not understand. And of course, the president doesn't realize that the person he is assigned to fix this problem is the person that is the source of the problem. The story is really complicated, but basically what happens is, you know, they go to this London temple dedication. The apostles are now aware of this because this is, there are lots of rumors flying. They come and question all of these missionaries. And it's said that even some missionaries that were not involved in the doctrinal discussions who don't know Tucker and know his zeal and know how he's changed the mission and sort of become disaffected there, seeing how the apostles are treating him because they think it's unfair. And so they sort of join Tucker's, Tucker's side with this. What happens is they start to question him. You know, the President Christensen of the mission tries to talk the problem through with them. And they realize that this is a way bigger issue than that they ever had had. Apostle Brown concludes a meeting at 8 p.m. and talks about how the adversary is affecting the French mission. Meanwhile, some of the companions we find out are now sending information to Ervil LeBaron in Mexico, who is writing them and giving them more information. So what ultimately happens is a group of missionaries are excommunicated, and they decide that they're going to come back to the U.S., they're going to leave the mission, and they're going to live the real gospel. And they are just excited. And there's a really powerful photo of this on Brian Hill's site, which I'll link to, where he has a bunch of the French missionaries en route to the USA after their excommunication in 1958. And the picture has Daniel Jordan, Stephen Silver, uh, Nacy Folk, Marilyn Lamborn, Neil Poulsen, Marlene Wessel, 
Bruce Wakem and Juna Abbott. And if you look, they're on this boat, right? So they take a boat, they take a steamliner to the U.S., just like the pioneers of old. So they feel like they are doing what their ancestors did, and they're going to come and travel and gather in Zion. And in this photo, they look absolutely elated. Here are a bunch of youth that have just gotten excommunicated, and they are elated. You can see this fire of fundamentalism is burning. Of course, you can read part two of the French mission discussion or essay so you can know how this affects the church and what happens. Um, it, it was a huge problem for the church, caused a lot of problems for them. But this is how the LeBarons come into play. These missionaries arrive in Mexico full of zeal. Uh, they find themselves a little bit disappointed to see the abject poverty people are living in. By 1962, Ervil LeBaron now moves into the presiding patriarch. And this places him number two in the authority to Joel LeBaron. He lets this go to his head. He is already making members uncomfortable, and at times he instills really strict rules on the congregation. He might tell them what to wear and what not to wear. He might tell them that they have to now all live in communal order, and they have to give up their jobs, and he divides them into different factions. Things change rather quickly with Ervil LeBaron as a presiding patriarch. While Joel was gone doing things or maybe involved in his own family, Ervil really lets this go to his head. They start having problems, the brothers do, because Ervil is now, he buys a fancy gold Cadillac. He is siphoning some of the church's tithing funds. Nobody knows that he is doing this. They are super, super poor, and he is eating really well, and his family is eating really well. They're buying more property, and um, they have a beachfront settlement in Baja, Baja, California called Los Molinos. This property was founded by Joel, who is now the prophet, in 1964. And Los Molinos, the property, property consisted of 8,500 acres, and it had nine miles fronting the beach. And several dozen Mexican and American firstborners live on the property, and here they construct their adobe huts, and they plant wheat fields, and they raise goats. Joel and Ervil start to clash by how the land should be used. They're not only disagreeing, but they're having different visions. Each of them are having visions. This is how the LeBarons work. Everything is a vision. They have different visions on how it's supposed to be used. Joel envisioned it as sort of an agricultural paradise where poor Mormons could come work on a communal farm, and Ervil saw it as a potential tourist paradise. Joel says, we're not doing that, I'm the prophet, we're not going to do that, but in spite of his opposition, Ervil sort of woos investors with his millionaire's dream, and he meets with all these investors and flies them down to tour the ocean front pointing out exactly where the resorts and the yacht would go. This further causes problems. The church had been broke for years because Ervil had brought in truckloads of Mexican converts at a faster rate than the colony could feed and clothe them. He also tried a lot of get-rich-quick schemes that would eventually that would support his family but leave the rest of the, the colony quite poor. He even took the... At one time when the when the colony was so, so poor and they were struggling, he takes the priesthood leadership on a gambling trip to Las Vegas. They, he has a revelation that they're going to win all this money 
And of course they go and these men are excited. They're going to win this back and they lose all their money. And some become disaffected with Ervil. Ervil, of course, blames it on them, saying that they're not being righteous enough and that it was their fault. Their church members are now forced to wear rags and eat meals of porridge. Ervil, who's skimming these funds, was riding around the colony in his gold impala. He was wearing these flashy suits. And they were getting the majority of their tithing from people outside the colony who had outside jobs and getting 10% of it. And the one who was collecting their payment was Ervil LeBaron. When people questioned him about the car, they started calling it the Golden Calf. He said that he didn't want to be driving it, but God told him it would impress potential converts. Ervil does not like being questioned. He doesn't like having his brothers question him. He's now starting to see that Joel maybe isn't the prophet at all. He loses confidence in that and thinks that maybe he should be the one. He was accruing women and other men's wives. He was sleeping with other men's wives. And when they would question him about it, he was saying, Sorry, God told me that this is that this is so. And it would devastate people. And he was asking for people's daughters, and they were devastated. And they believed this is what had to happen. Ervil becomes more and more obsessed with the Old Testament. He's reading. He's doing a lot of writing. He believes that in Moses' time, a lot of the commandments were punishable by death. He starts saying that maybe some of those same rules should apply in this Baja California region as well. So he comes up with a series of decrees that he bases on the Ten Commandments called civil law. And he points himself as the law's chief enforcer. He tells people that they will die if they break this law. He even gives meetings where he describes in great detail ancient death rituals that would be applied to transgressors, including disembowelment, stoning, and beheading. And he calls the women in specifically and tells them that some of them are going to have to marry him. And perhaps, you know, if their husbands are, you know, dismissing these laws, they would have to die. The women start to get really nervous around him. This is where things get a little crazy. Ervil decides that one of the people that should die for transgressing this law is their old friend Rulon Allred, the prophet, the leader of the AUB. Now, interestingly enough, Ervil had grown up with Rulon. They had been friends in the 1950s. But he, Ervil was now claiming that Rulon Allred was saying that their family was crazy, this is character assassination, and it was a, an offense punishable by death sentence under the civil law given by God in the days of Moses. Joel, who is the prophet, watches Ervil scare all the firstborners with these gruesome threats. He finally gets fed up. He thinks this is not what God wants. So in the summer of 1972, Joel tells Ervil that maybe he should settle down. Ervil responds and says that God has told him that he and Joel should run the church as equals. Joel says, absolutely not. I'm the prophet. You're the patriarch. We cannot run this as equals. Things escalate and Joel is forced to remove Ervil from the position of leadership altogether. This is done in a conference. People are already upset at Ervil, but Ervil bears this great testimony, crying, saying he knows he has to step down, and everybody's hearts are warm to him again, so much so that the congregation was crying with him. What we didn't know is that as Ervil leaves that meeting that day, after being removed from his calling, he would start plotting 
against his brother Joel. In 1972, Ervil LeBaron starts his own church, the rival church called the Church of the Lamb of God. And he starts gaining followers who are not impressed with Joel, but who've always been loyal to Ervil. Of course, Ervil is rewarding them with more money and riches. He also begins teaching his followers that in accordance with the doctrine of blood atonement, Joel has to be executed for his sins. Ervil teaches his followers that he, Ervil, is actually the one mighty and strong, prophesied in the Doctrine and Covenants, and that un- under accordance with that, it's his decision that Joel has to be put to death. On August 20th, 1972, in Ensenada, Baja, California, Mexico, one of Ervil's followers, Daniel Jordan, who was this missionary in the French mission that would pray openly and not eat white bread, shoots Joel LeBaron in the head while Joel's young son was asleep in the car in the driveway. This is devastating to the community. Now Verland, who is a brother, who is married to Irene Spencer, knows that he could be on the hit list as well because Verland has now stepped up and taken over Ervil's spot as patriarch in the church. Verlin starts traveling constantly. He kind of goes underground, just like the Plugmas of old. This time he's not hiding from the government. He's hiding from his own brother. In December, Ervil walks into the police headquarters in Ensenada with two lawyers, and he demands that the murder charges against him be dropped. He was tired of hiding from cops, and he wanted to convert more people in his church by traveling all over. The police had been trailing him for months, and they were shocked that he had walked in, and so they immediately throw him in jail. He went to trial nine months later. He was found only guilty of homicide and sentenced only 12 years in prison because prosecutors could not place Ervil at the crime scene. Interestingly enough, he serves only one day of his sentence. His followers kind of see him as Lazarus walking, stumbling from his tomb. And he gets out of a cell block in February 14th, 1974. Ervil takes his core group of followers in Yuma, Arizona. And he starts uh, sort of doing what Joseph Smith did in Nauvoo, where Joseph Smith, towards the end of his, you know, presidency, he was calling himself all these titles like King of the Earth. You know, the Council of Fifty is, is ordaining him as king over all the earth. Ervil does something similar. His followers start calling him Lord Anointed, the One Mighty and Strong, and Prophet of God. Ervil starts to get more paranoid that the firstborners are going to come get him now because he has killed their prophet Joel. So he starts carrying a gun and he requires all of his wives and children to take marksmanship classes. They bring in a loyalist who served from Vietnam. This, this big, strong uh, military guy, he starts teaching them all how to shoot, including the young children. Ervil paces back and forth in front of them, telling them they could all be slaughtered at any moment. And this group starts to act more like the mafia than they do a church. And I've linked to, it's a made-for-TV movie about this. And they actually do a surprisingly good job, all things considered, in acting this out in sort of historically accurate ways, according to multiple sources. So I've linked to that. If you have an hour and you want to watch this, it's on Hulu. It's free. You can watch it online. These members of the church take aliases. They have driver's license and birth certificates drawn up in new names. And they only make calls from pay phones so it could be traced to their location. Ervil publishes an essay called Hour of Crisis, Day of Vengeance. It's sort of written in this pompous-sounding King James English, 
and it's barely coherent to read. He sends it to a bunch of different organizations, and uh, the firstborners read it, and they understand what it means, because it was essentially a list of demands on the firstborn church. Here's a quote from it, quote, It is a criminal offense punishable by death for an enlightened people to pay tithes and offerings to thieves and robbers and other fundamentalist leaders. The sword of vengeance will hang over the heads of all those who should fail to hear the word of the Lord. Willful failure to comply with this book's minimum requirements constitutes the crime of rebellion against God, end quote. In other words, those who would not pay their dues to Ervil should die. Ervil's mother starts to get worried. She says, Ervil should not have gone to jail. He should have gone to a mental hospital. She tries to tell him, Ervil, you're acting like my father. My father was like you. He was hearing voices that made him do some violent things. I'm worried for you. I don't think you're well. Please change. Of course, this ultimatum that Ervil puts out on all the other sects to pay their tithing to him is met by being ignored and by silence. And so Ervil has another revelation. He decides that, that his group must destroy the firstborners in Los Molinos. So the day after Christmas, he sends his foot soldiers across the border into Baja under the cover of night, and they have firebombs and assault weapons. Thirty firstborn families gathered around their wood-burning stoves and were tucking their kids into bed. And Irene Spencer, in what she calls sort of divine intervention, actually had taken her kids to a nearby uh, village and was out of the colony when this happened. A Fiat turns onto the dirt road, cutting off their headlights, and slowly crawls into the village. All of a sudden, the peaceful night is shattered by a Molotov cocktail crashing through the window of one of the town's largest houses. All of a sudden, houses start burning and are engulfed in fire. People run outside of the house, and it's confusing. They don't know what's going on. As these people are running out from the house, Ervil's men start spraying those people and the town with bullets. These people are trying to form a water brigade, and their figures are being shot down. The assailants drive through the, the settlement again, throwing more firebombs into the homes, and they're trying to make their way towards Verlin's home. Verlin has now taken over Brother Joel's spot as the prophet. Of course, Verlin wasn't home. He was hiding, but his first wife, Charlotte, and their six children were home. And they saw the truck with five armed men in the back making an erratic beeline for their house. So they run and hide in a dark orchard while the men shoot up their house and set it on fire. This attack would only take about 20 minutes and it left two men dead and 13 people wounded. Ervil was, of course, not one of the men doing this. He watched from a secluded area and he was angry, so angry at his followers that his brother was left alive. Ervil had moles that were planted in the firstborners who would report back to him on sort of these activities. But these moles were starting to get nervous after this raid. One of them was Naomi Zarate, who was a plural wife of one of Ervil's close friends. Naomi started complaining about the violence, and she threatened to tell the police the location of Ervil's whereabouts. With the full blessing of Naomi's husband, Ervil decides to shut her up once and for all, and he calls one of his wives, Vonda White, to assassinate Naomi. Vonda and Naomi had known each other for years. They had a trust and a relationship. So Vonda convinces Naomi to go for a ride with a ride for her in the car in January of 1975. They drive to a canyon in the foothills of the San Pedro Mountains. And in the dark canyon, 
Vonda would shoot Naomi, who was a mother of five, full of bullets before she could even beg for mercy. Erval starts making this a pattern. He starts giving callings, especially to his wives, uh, to that they must atone. He says, God wants you to commit blood atonement. Another of his wives, Yolanda Rios, who would later be murdered a decade later, helped Vonda dig a shallow grave um, where they dumped Naomi's body, and it has never been found. Erval would say, you don't know how pleased the Lord is that that traitor is dead when he heard the news. He starts realizing his power. He can get his followers to do anything. So he sends out another ultimatum to fundamentalist leaders. He says, quote, repent ye or suffer destruction at the hands of God. And he sends this letter around. Ervil tries to threaten and intimidate anyone he can. Someone that he does this to is Bob Simmons, who was sort of a follower who lived on a 65-acre ranch near Grantsville, Utah, which is out by me. Bob Simmons lived with his two wives and had spent some time in mental hospitals when he was younger because he believed he was a prophet destined to convert Native Americans to the Mormon faith. He is given this ultimatum that he has to give up all his property to Ervil. He does not cave to these demands. He is now going to be the victim of blood atonement. Ervil gathers his henchmen around him and reveals that God wants him to die. We are going to blow him up like a balloon, he said. So the men drive out to Simmons Ranch out in Grantsville. Ervil's men buy, uh, stop by a gardening store. They buy pickaxes, shovels, and bags of chemicals. And they stop in the desert hills and dig a coffin-sized hole. They pick him up in the car. They go to talk. They drive him in front of the desert, and they shoot him. They shoot him and dump him in the desert. Meanwhile, Ervil is back. He's made uh, one of his followers, a man named Dean, who was the, the Vietnam, Vietnam War veteran. He makes him the church's military general, and he's buying explosives and weapons. Uh, Dean's wife, Cheryl, was not into the church's sort of chauvinist teachings. And so she asked Dean to leave the church, and he wouldn't. So she leaves and moves to Washington State with her two children. Dean is devastated, and he starts to reconsider his allegiances. And this makes Ervil worried, because there's no way Ervil would let his military commander simply walk away from the church. So he gets one of the least suspicious people to put a hit of blood atonement out on Dean. He chooses Vonda White, his wife. Vonda was living near San Diego with a sister wife and a house full of children. They asked Dean to come in and help because Dean would often stop by on his travels and they would cook for him and he would help around the house. He would never suspect that Vonda, who was barely 5'3 and 6 months pregnant, would kill him, but they didn't know that she had already proved that she was a murderer. She had killed uh, her sister wife, Naomi Zarate, in January. So she kills Dean. That's another one that they murder. In the midst of all of this, Ervil receives a revelation that he needs to take another wife, and he marries Rena Chanath, his 13th wife, in February 1975. She was 16, and he was 50. In her memoir, The Blood Covenant, Rena says, quote, Ervil molested her for four years before she finally gave in to making it legal. She claims that on their wedding night, he struggled to uh, even consummate the marriage, and she was utterly repulsed by him. She said she, quote, had to close my eyes and pretend I was somewhere else or was, or he was someone else, she writes. I could often turn my head away or hold my breath so I wouldn't have to smell his breath. 
It always reeked of something awful, usually coffee. He kissed like a fish, very stiff-lipped in a way that really disgusted me, unquote. Now, Rena is young. She's hesitant. She plays herself as sort of innocent. And what has happened is Ervil has now put a hit on all the leaders of the different groups, including the LDS church leader, who will not pay their tithing. So on May 10th, 1977, Ervil sends Rena and another young woman, Ramona Marston, to kill the AUB church leader, Rulan Allred. Now, Rulan Allred was said to be a loving, kind man that everybody loved. He ran a homeopathic clinic on that in Murray, Utah. So they walk into his office wearing cheap wigs and fake glasses. Rena spots Rulon, who steps back from a back room, and she walks towards him. He nods at her. Rena would say, quote, He was exactly as he had been described to me. Tall, slender, gray-haired, a nice, pleasant-looking man. He was no more than three to five feet from me. I knew the moment had come to do what I was sent there to do. So she she doesn't say a word to him. She pulls out the twenty-five caliber pistol from her jacket and empties all seven bullets into the into the chest of Rulon Allred. Rulon Allred, of course, was a beloved man in the community. His funeral was held at Bingham High School. You can look up YouTube videos about this. Over 2,600 people from around the country would travel to say their final goodbye, including Verlin LeBaron. Now, LeBaron's wife, Irene Spencer, of course, is cousins to a lot of these followers. Rulon Allred actually happened to be her uncle. So she would go to, but anyone that had the LeBaron name was sort of looked on as complicit in this, even though they were no longer involved with Ervil, who had killed them. What Verlin suspected but didn't know for sure was that there were men at the funeral sent by Ervil there to kill him. These men show up. They're surrounded, you know, the, the funeral surrounded by police and protection. They spot Verlin but they are unable to kill him, and so they go back. Ervil is spitting mad that they do not kill the brother again, and it makes him angry for days. Eventually, Ervil LeBaron is convicted in Utah for ordering the killing of Rulon C. Allred. He was held at the county jail on May 12, 1980, where he finally goes on trial for masterminding Rulon Allred's murder. He is sentenced to life in prison at the Point of the Mountain State Prison in Draper, Utah. But this doesn't end things, not at all. He was in jail, and he writes a book called The Book of the New Covenants at his small desk cell. It's probably his most famous work. 500-page screed contained a hit list of more than 50 people who Orville decided needed to be blood-atoned. Among them were any of his cult defectors, police investigators, and prison, prison officials. He sends these copies of the manuscript to his followers. He would die in prison on August 16, 1881, of apparent heart attack. In a weird twist of fate, his brother Verlin was killed in a car crash in Mexico a few hours later. They would d die very closely with each other. Uh, some believe it was an accident. Some believe it wasn't. Ervil's death did not end things. The Book of New Covenants contained a line of succession of men who were to carry out the ministry after he died. And, eerily enough, one by one the people on the hit list began to die. They, they believed Ervil was sort of orchestrating this beyond the grave. On June 21st, 1883, his son Isaac, 20, 
who had testified against Erville, died in a suspicious suicide while he was staying with other members in Houston. In the fall of 1983, the plans of Erville's wife, uh, Lorna, to defect from the cult were cut short when the mother of eight was strangled and buried in a shallow grave in Mexico. Her body has never been found. On December 28, 1983, Erville's oldest son, Arturo, who was 33 at the time, was gunned down in Mexico by Leo Ivonuic, a rival who disputed his claim to the prophet's mantle. After Arturo died, the cult leadership fell to Heber LeBaron, Erville's 20-year-old son. Heber had also inherited um, the handsomeness of his father, but he had also inherited his insanity. His first move was to purge Los Molinos of traitors who'd aligned themselves with even Newick. In the early months of 1984, he shot Gamaliel Rios in the face with a 45 automatic. His body was buried in the desert and never recovered. Neither that of Yolando Rios, Earl's 12th wife, who was strangled to death in May 1984 and buried outside of Dallas. On May 21st, 1987, Leo Ev- Newick was murdered near Santa Cruz, California. Only his dentures lying in a pool of blood were found. On October 16th, 1987, Dan Jordan, the original missionary from the Tucker Mission in France, was shot in the head while on a hunting trip in the Manti Los, Lasalle National Forest in Utah with his family and some LeBaron kids, and his murder was never found, uh, was never solved. But June 27th, 1988 was the single bloodiest day in the Colts' history. Erville had raged for 15 long paragraphs in New Covenants against Mark Shanoth, Dwayne Shanoth, and Ed Marston, demanding that they be slain as traitors. At 4 o'clock that afternoon, in simultaneous murders hundreds of miles apart, his wishes were carried out. There's a, there's a great book about this called The Four O'Clock Murders that talks about this. All of these three men were former cult uh, henchmen of Erville's who were trying to preserve pursue normal lives, um, but this was not meant to be. Dwayne Shanoth was gunned down in Houston when he drove to pick up a used washer at a private home. Um, his eight-year-old daughter Jennifer was with him that day, and she screamed when her daddy was shot. She witnessed it. The assassin turned when he heard the child, walked back to the truck to shoot her in the mouth and the forehead because he did not want to leave a potential witness. Across the state in Irving, Eddie Marston was also mowed down by bullets at 4 o'clock after, um, at work. And police found Mark Shanoth in the back of, of a repair shop in Houston. His lifeless body sprawled on the paperwork of his desk and riddled with bullet holes. He'd also been executed at 4 o'clock. One by one, the authors of the quadruple murder were caught, caged, and hauled into court. In May of 1993, Heber LeBaron, Patricia LeBaron, and Douglas Lee Barlow were sentenced to life in prison without parole for their part in the slings. Richard LeBaron, who was only 17 when he shot Dwayne and Jennifer Shanoth to death, was sentenced to five years in prison. Cynthia LeBaron was granted immunity and testified against her half-siblings at the trial. In June of 1997, Aaron LeBaron was sentenced to 45 years in prison for racketeering. Despite the fact that these killers were jailed, many former cult members still live in fear because it's unclear who the new leader of the LeBaron cult is and whether they continue to check off names off the hit list. The deaths have been quiet for years now. 
but uh, Jacqueline LeBaron, who helped, or- who was uh, Irville's daughter and helped orchestrate the murders, was caught in 2010 and jailed. And um, up until this point, I mean, this is 2010. This is not that long ago. And I should mention that I that I brought up some key murders, but Irville LeBaron actually also murdered his pregnant daughter because she was dissatisfied with her abusive polygamous marriage. He murdered a lot of people. His his wife that had murdered Allred was let off in court, and uh, she got off on a technicality. And the minute she was uh, out of court and her charges were dropped, of course, since she had gone through a trial, she went and wrote a book and admitted that she was the killer. And Allred's family was so upset, they sued her. And if I remember right, they won a $58 million settlement, and they never saw a penny of that. To escape the death threats, Irene and her children, remember Irene Spencer, she was forced to live in Nicaragua. She was on the, the hit list as well. And so they lived in huts in Nicaragua without electricity or indoor plumbing. And this was a hard time for her because they had ticks and jungle insects and infected by intestinal worms. The conditions were so bad they nearly broke Irene. And she finally left her husband, Verlin, in 1978. In spite of his abject poverty, he married a 10th wife, Priscilla, and this was it for Irene. She leaves him, but is eventually convinced to return to him. And a year later, he dies in this automobile accident. Irene Spencer would move to Anchorage, Alaska, uh, marry a man named Hector Spencer, become a born-again Christian, and... um become an outspoken critic of polygamy. She's published the book Shattered Dreams, My Life as a Polygamous Wife, and Cult Insanity, a Memoir of Polygamy, Prophets, and Blood Atonement. Um, her husband, Hector Spencer, of 19 years, passed away on January 21st, 2013, at their home, which was now in Mexico. Jacqueline LeBaron, who was the daughter of Irville, was caught by the FBI in May 2010. A lot of Irene's kids moved on from polygamy, but two were still caught up in plural marriage. Some people still live in fear that the list might still be active, and the FBI, as of 2007, refused to comment whether LeBaron's hit list remains active. This is from an article in the Desert News at the time in 2007, quote, There's a paranoia out there, said Susan Ray Schmidt, who was once betrothed to Erville LeBaron at age 15, ending up becoming his sixth wife of his brother Verlin. Verlin LeBaron died in a car crash in Mexico City on the same day Irville died in prison. Schmidt believed it was merely an accident, but she said other in the families insist it was murder. Schmidt, who now lives in Idaho and recently wrote a book titled His Favorite Wife, Trapped in Polygamy, said she has spoken with people still in the LeBaron group. Some remain convinced they could be killed, even after all these years. There really is no way for them to know that it's something long in the past and there's no such thing as Irville LeBaron hit list anymore, she said. Anyone who carried it out is either long dead, locked up, or repentant. It's a dead list. Schmidt said she does not believe the list is still active. In fact, she said she has spoken to many of Irville LeBaron's children who want nothing more than to get past those awful years. Jensen and her husband, Kimball, was a bodyguard for some of the children who testified against Irville LeBaron. Her father, Harold Blackmore, was also a member of the rival polygamous group. They were told by the FBI that they were on the list, she said. Initially, Jensen said she worried. She took precautions. Now she says she doesn't really worry because she refuses to live in fear. You're always on the list, and if there's someone out there that picks up that cause, she said, I've been asked a lot, don't you feel afraid? No, because I can't allow it to cripple me to the point where I can't do anything. 
Something also interesting has happened to the LeBaron group. There are still Mormon communities in Mexico, and in the past few years, they've been sucked up in sort of a dust devil of violence. I've linked to this, a Washington Post article that talks about this. Uh, the LeBaron groups in Mexico have some relative wealth com- compared to some of their indigenous counterparts, and because of the drug wars going on, they've had a lot of problems. Their children have been taken by kidnappers and they have been drawn into the government's war with drug cartels. The leader of their colony was abducted by heavily armed men dressed as police and then beaten and shot dead. His name was Benji LeBaron, or Benjamin LeBaron. He was 31. Benji had dared to denounce the drug criminals and refused to pay a million-dollar ransom demanded by kidnappers who grabbed his teenage son from the his teenage brother from a family ranch in May. Benjamin LeBaron's killers posted a sign that read, quote, This is for the leaders of LeBaron who didn't believe and who still don't believe. And some suspected that it had to do with the rival factions, but the government thinks it has to do with the drug wars. You can go on and watch a really good YouTube clip about this where the current leaders of LeBaron's talk about this death. There's uh, footage of Benji LeBaron's funeral, and you can tell that these people don't want violence. They just want to be left alone. And also for the Tuckers, right? Remember the Tuckers? We wonder what happened to those. Several of them joined the Church of the Firstborn. And of course, like Dan Jordan ended up dead because of it. Several rejoined the LDS Church. Um, you can read that in part two of the essays that I've linked. I know I've kind of jumped back and forth. It's such a complicated story with so many moving parts. But I hope you'll look into this. This is a crazy story about how fundamentalism can happen. And it's been a really difficult story to research because it's so dark. And I've struggled because, you know, it's easy for me to write off these people as completely nuts because clearly there are some severe, severe mental illness issues going on. That's not what made them nuts to me. What made them nuts was their sort of fanaticism. And yet when I look at it, I feel like even these people are victims of the system. This is what I always say, be harsh on systems and kind on individuals. Many of these people in the LeBaron groups, with the exception of some of the leaders that there are no excusing their actions, were victims of the system of polygamy that long predated them, that went generations and generations that prepared them for this sort of fundamentalism, coupled with poverty and coupled with mental illness, faith and devotion, This is a story of what could happen to any of us if we were in different circumstances. So before we're quick to judge and to distance ourselves from this, it very easily could have been any one of us had our circumstances been a little bit different. And that's why the LeBaron story is so interesting to me. So go ahead and read the links that I provided. Watch the movie. Read the books. It's it's certainly a ride. It's certainly probably the most violent story out there. Many, many people died. Uh, over 30 people died when Verlin was alive and more died after. So, you know, this fanaticism, this doctrine, this Mormon, strong Mormon tonic, really, this is how we see it follow to its logical conclusion in really dark ways. And so it's an interesting case study. And I, for one, am just glad that uh, that was not where my ancestors ended up. So anyway, thank you for listening to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast.